and that important message to employers about ensuring that their payroll professional is adequately educated and upskilled and is carrying on with their continued professional development to maintain those skills. Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Payroll Podcast. Now, as we all know, the recent budget has been announced against a backdrop of the global outbreak of COVID-19. Despite Black Monday and considerable market turmoil, the good news is the fundamentals of the UK economy do remain strong and it appears that governments all over the world are working really hard to help people prepare for what may still be to come. From a recruitment perspective, employment growth has remained strong and actually reached a record high in the three months to December 19. And with earnings and growth also above inflation, there are still lots to be positive about. But of course, the recent COVID-19 outbreak is obviously creating considerable uncertainty in the short term. We've seen the Bank of England slashing interest rates from 0.75% to 0.25% to help. But there have also been a number of plans made in the latest budget to combat this uncertainty as well. So today on this special episode of the Payroll Podcast, I'm joined by Samantha Mann, Policy and Research Technical Lead at the CIPP, or the Chartered Institute of Payroll Professionals. And we're going to find out exactly how the new budget plans to support individuals affected by COVID-19 and, of course, how these changes will subsequently impact payroll professionals tasked with calculating, implementing and, and processing the proposals. So stay tuned. We're going to dive into the 2020 budget to discuss statutory sick pay, tax rates and thresholds, off payroll working, also known as R35, employment allowances increases and some surprise announcements as well. So welcome, Samantha, to your first episode of the Payroll Podcast joining me today. How are you feeling? Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm very excited. This is my very first podcast to be involved with. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, of course, we all know this is the first budget of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's majority government. It's the first of a new decade, the first since the UK's departure from the European Union. It's also the first budget delivered by new Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Rishi Sunak, who, of course, was only appointed on February the 13th. So the last budget, of course, was delivered by former Chancellor Philip Hammond in 2018. And this budget if we remember, was fought with delays and news of, su- of sudden resignation. So my first question is this, Samantha, has it been worth the wait? Indeed. 28 days in post and Richie Sunak performed with every bit as much aplomb as the Chancellor, as Chancellors in the past who've gone before him. And clearly this is a year, if particularly if we look to Scotland, where we also had a very last minute reserve stand in place with Kate Forbes. This year, we I think we can be assured that age is no barrier in delivering successful budget uh, speeches. So it's uh, so at that level, it's been a real positive. And indeed, it was a bumper edition. And I think, you know, the, listening to the media since then in commentary, um, there's, there are concerns in certain areas in, ter- uh, in terms of the clear signalling of an end to austerity measures. Uh, and indeed, there's a bit of a whole package of measures, even setting aside uh, emergency measure support. There's a package of measures and this government is clearly going out to spend uh, in this budget. Was it worth the wait? As with most budgets, time is brilliant at being able to demonstrate whether or not a budget speech was worth the paper it was written on. Um, and, and of course, we'll see that. And 
the domination, which I'm sure we'll come to in discussion, what has been, of course, emergency measures and uh, COVID-19. Um, interestingly, we were expecting to see some news about the establishment of a single enforcement body. Um, and also, we're still waiting for a response from the employment status consultation that was held a number of years ago now. Uh, and so I, I'm wondering if they were casualties to the extreme measures that had to be discussed um, earlier in the week. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of those extreme measures, because, of course, right now with, with coronavirus, public safety is, for obvious reasons, the government's top priority. Um, they, are, they do recognise that people are clearly very concerned about the effect it's going to have on their livelihoods and, and businesses, particularly ones like mine, which are quite small, are very concerned about disruptions to, uh, to our workforces during this temporary period. So I know that the budget announced a £12 billion plan to provide support for public services, individuals and businesses, which includes, of course, extending statutory sick, uh, sick pay. Samantha, I wonder if you could tell us about how these emergency measures are going to impact employers and pale professionals, particularly in relation to processing SSP. We knew from the announcement from the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, a week or two ago, that statutory sick pay was going to become payable in situations affected by coronavirus from day one, as opposed to day four, which is the period of incapacity to work, which is the, the usual starting point for statutory sick pay. And just for a moment, I'm going to pause and say, let's not forget that statutory sick pay sets a rule, sets um, a, a minimum amount of obligation, legal obligation on the employer to make a minimum payment to an employee in the instant that they are incapable for, for work under their contract, either due to illness or some other incapacity, um, some other physical incapacity. At no point since the percentage threshold scheme was abolished do the government fund this in any way. So this is a wholly employer-funded cost. And so from the moment that budget uh, that, that announcement was made by the Prime Minister, our advisory lines, uh, email, web chat, has run hot with questions from our members and the wider community as to how this would work. A, from day one, as opposed from a traditional period of incapacity to work of four continuous calendar days, and also who would fund these emergency measures. And it, so it was reassuring. That was the main question in our mind. Were we going to get confirmation? Conversations are already ongoing with HMRC's statutory payments consultation group, which is a long-established HMRC subgroup of the employment and payroll group, about how this could be addressed and how this could be dealt with, not just by employers and their payroll professionals, but also by software. Because let's not forget that there isn't a, well, there are only a tiny number of employers who are able to process payroll manually now. We rely heavily on software. And so software developers are a key stakeholder in, in these discussions. So one of the biggest impacts, of course, is how do we process this when our computers tell us no, the computer says no. Um, so we heard, of course, through the, um, through the budget announcement that it would become um, payable uh, for eligible individuals who are diagnosed, diagnosed with COVID-19 or are unable to work due to self-isolating in line with government advice. And it's interesting because this is such a rapidly moving beast um, that two days ago, during the budget, government advice was looking at 14 days. 
just last night on the news, I know it was looking at seven days self-isolation in the event that you have a high temperature or you have a new continuous cough. Um, so that time limit has dropped from 14 days to seven days already. So I think that that those two words, government advice, are going to be key in how this works going forward, which actually isn't helpful if you're looking for black and white guidance. Um, at what point is the government guidance or the government advice going to be taken? Obviously, people are being advised to self-isolate in, in situations. And as I say, it was 14 days. It is now seven days. And the fit note, which is a self-certification, used to be referred to as self-certification, covers the first seven days of absence. An employer cannot insist on a medical certificate or a fit for work note for statutory sick pay purposes under the seven days. And so those first seven days would require, under normal circumstances, self-certification. And we have been told through the budget statement that by contacting NHS 111 service, there should be uh, the availability of some form of self-certification through that process. But again, we're still waiting to hear the details of how that will actually work. And then, of course, those who are not eligible for SSP, and these have been particularly newsworthy, particularly since the Matthew Taylor is continues to be particularly concerned for workers or for employees who don't earn up to the lower earnings level, which is currently £118, increasing to 120 in the new tax year from the 6th of April. So the budget ensured that they can also make a claim for universal credit or contributory employment and support allowance more easily due to another range of measures that are going to be revealed and detailed in the budget report. Um, and that, of course, it was published after the Chancellor sat down. Another piece of good news for employers who have less than 250 employees is that the government will fund up to 14 days. Now, again, this was a budget announcement. At the time, self-isolation was a period of 14 days. Now, self-isolation has moved to a period of seven days. So whether or not, again, that's a changing uh, a changing picture, we don't yet know. But government, uh, the Chancellor did confirm that government would be in discussions with employers and stakeholders. And we assume that that will be um, primarily through the HMRC's consultation group to discuss how that funding could be paid. Because again, the remittances historically, well, if we look to other statutory payments, all of those have an element that can be recovered, either 92% or 100% plus an element of NI compensation, which is currently 3%. So small employers um, can recover 103% or those with a low NIC bill, and large employers can recover 92%. So there is a recovery mechanism by offsetting against the remittances, the tax, the uh, student loans, the national insurance contributions, you have reduced your pay, your employees pay by. Now that's the existing process, but of course for statutory sick pay, that process hasn't existed for some years. The percentage threshold scheme, for example, didn't work in, in exactly that same way. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not there'll be a direct payment um, issued by government to cover those costs um, that have been incurred by uh, the smaller employer or whether or not um, there will be some recovery mechanism that could be possible through the software. I think it's unlikely through the software at this late stage, but all options are being considered at the moment by employers. You mentioned software at the moment is saying no because obviously it wasn't planned for these changes. Are you seeing then software developers working really hard at the moment to update some of the more, particularly some of the more well-known systems to be able to 
process these new SSP um, measures through the system? Or is it they're not going to be able to make those changes, do you think, in time uh, before people start actually making the claims? I think in reality, um, as much, and I know that software developers have worked furiously hard in recent years to deliver solutions um, to government policy initiatives. And in this instance, they will be doing the same, whether or not, given that this is an unusual situation, this is a a kind of one-off situation. The Chancellor described it as a a once-in-a-generation health issue so this is this is true emergency situations so would it be reasonable to expect software developers to invest in the cost of making those changes no i don't think it would i don't i th- don't think in reality it would be um but i do know that all all options are being considered um uh, i think it's a nice reminder, though, for those that are still able uh, to process payroll manually, that actually this is a great example of where those skills are absolutely vital. Because, you know, there are the, you know, we can sometimes rely too much on software to do everything for us. And actually, let's not let's not forget the importance of, of really strong payroll skills to be able to do these things manually, as and when you know situations like this do arise. Now, one one thing that, that did, did come out to me was you mentioned the um, the seven days now it's dropped, you know it's dropped, and you mentioned the certificates, but Will a certificate then still be required after the seven days? Do you know what the process is beyond those seven days? The requirement with statutory sick pay is that the employer satisfies themselves that the employee is incapable of work under their contract. Now, if you are a window cleaner, you're employed as a window cleaner and you break both legs, you clearly can't be climbing ladders. So in that situation, the employer actually reasonably wouldn't require wouldn't require for statutory sick pay purposes a medical certificate because they clearly satisfied that with two big plasters right up to the hips their worker is not able to climb a ladder so under that contract they wouldn't be able to deliver they would be incapacitated however the employer may have their own um, con- uh, terms and conditions that require the employee to provide a medical certificate for them to top up statutory sick pay so beyond the minimal minimum statutory rate um, but from a statutory sick pay perspective technically the employer simply needs to be satisfied so again whether or not in this unusual situation um, government will through the nhs 111 system have a self-certification process that extends beyond um, seven days for the self-isolation period for COVID-19 cases, um, we have yet to discover because I don't know if you've received a text, Nick, but I certainly received a text early last week from my doctor saying, if, you, if you're if you showing any symptoms, don't come to the surgery. I haven't, but a lot of my colleagues have had those kind of texts. So, yeah. Exactly. Yes. That does mean that a fit for work note or a medical certificate, as it used to be referred to many years ago, wouldn't be available and uh, and the chancellor as i say made clear that in this situation it'll be the nhs 111 service the window cleaner example um, if that window cleaner was self-employed what benefits were announced for for those that are self-employed who potentially get covid19 and, and they also need to self-isolate because i believe there was some talk about um an employment and support allowance Yes, indeed. The Chancellor announced a whole package of measures to support business, um, uh, business of all sizes, not just small business, but particularly small businesses. Um, So in addition to the funding for 
um, businesses with fewer than 250 employees. He also looked to providing extra support for the self-employed and those who aren't eligible for statutory sick pay through the contributory employment and supportment allowance that's normally payable at a rate of 73.10 per week for individuals aged 25 and over. And again, for eligible people affected by COVID-19 or self-isolating in line with advice from day one of sickness, as opposed to day one to day eight, which is the current rules. So the contributory employment and support allowance rate for those under 25 is currently £57.90. So what they've done there is they've reduced the amount of time that an individual would need to wait in order to be able to put in a claim. And of course, they made clear that they would, wouldn't necessarily have to visit a job centre in order to make that claim. And also for individuals who, who are able to claim universal credits where they are self-isolating, they need to be able to access that help without attending a job centre. So I understood the government uh, has temporarily, I think it's temporarily removed the minimum income floor for universal credits. And I think they've also announced a a £500 million hardship fund to support the economically vulnerable people, uh, which is going to be allocated by local authorities. Do you have any more information about, about those two elements? I've not seen any further information since the budget. Um, it has to be said, but as I said, have referred to a couple of times, this is a rapidly moving piece. And the one key element of all of this is the importance of having that clear, concise and accurate guidance available to all stakeholders who need it. So in this instance, we're talking about the individuals because absolutely it's the individuals who are calling their payroll professionals uh, and their employers to say, I've heard this announcement by Boris. What does that mean for me? Because I'm currently self-isolating because I'm showing symptoms. You've got the payroll professionals who are calling us and their software developers to say, we've heard these same announcements. What does that mean for our software? What does that mean for how we deliver, put together our processes for SSP? What's unusual about this? How long will it last? My employer's asking me how, who's going to fund this because they can't afford to. And obviously, the package of measures also includes support in the form of time to pay arrangements, which government often use through HMRC in times of emergency. We've seen it uh, rolled out very successfully in the past when there have been business interruptions due to floods. A specialised helpline has been set up for businesses to contact HMRC to discuss time to pay arrangements for their tax bills. If you want the number, it's 0800 0159. Five five nine. Excellent. So it sounds like the government's doing an awful lot to, to help individuals in this current state. So let's look at payroll from a wider context. From your perspective, do you think payroll then is is very much becoming sort of the main vessel in administering support to working families? <laughs> Indeed, if we just have to look at what we currently have. In t- let's pause for a moment and look at what we currently have in terms of statutory support in leave and pay that's delivered by the employer. We have statutory maternity pay, which we've had. Since the early 80s, we've had, uh, we have statutory adoption pay, we have statutory paternity pay, we have shared parental leave and pay. Uh, and as from April, we will also be seeing the introduction of parental bereavement leave and statutory parental bereavement pay, which is um, uh, allows for a payment of up to two weeks, um, which can either be taken in a single block of two weeks or in two separate weeks. Um, to provide some form of financial support um, to the employer, uh, to the worker who is affected by bereavement um, of, a, of a child. And, the ch- and that can be from any time from 24 weeks gestation 
period um, through to the child being 18. So that comes in from April um, 2020. Um, but of course, as we heard in the budget, um, there was a, a reference to the neonatal pay and leave for working parents whose babies spend an extended period of time in neonatal care, and that will provide a maximum of 12 weeks leave and pay. Now, obviously, we've yet to see what the details of that will will uh, will look like. Um, I would imagine, and uh, this is this is just an estimate here, that the leave would be a day one right, just as we see with all of the others, but the pay will have qualifying. I, I, we have an expectation that the pay will have qualifying criteria in the same way that there is qualifying criteria for all statutory payments, but that we'll be um, discussing in the, the coming year. And then, of course, we also heard through the budget the announcement that government are going to consult on providing carer support. So here we're moving away from working parents specifically uh, to, a, to a wider working community so that where an individual um, employee has caring responsibilities for a family member or dependent, um, that they will also be able to claim some form of leave. This has been a criticism for some time now um, by people who aren't parents, uh, but they do still work and they do have caring responsibilities. Well, what about us? We, you know, we don't get this support. Um, and so there'll be a consultation being launched. Um, at what point that consultation will be launched in the coming year? Who knows? Uh, because again, we are in a situation where because it, it's not uncommon for when a consultation paper is launched, it generally runs for about 12 weeks and whichever department is is leading on that will normally hold round tables and meetings with respondents to discuss the details um so it'll be interesting to see when that when that's actually published um but we we as i say we heard in the budget so yes um clearly the government has a very high regard for the employer's ability through their payroll professional to deliver this type of support to their workforce and from a payroll profession perspective um, this is an excellent thing. From an employer perspective, maybe not so excellent because this is a huge, uh, you know, every, every, every new obligation brings with it an administrative burden. Even if the government is still funding an element of it, there's still the burden of actually operating it. Um, but from a payroll profession perspective, this is um, critical. And you touched on this er earlier, that importance for the employer to be satisfied that their payroll professional is um, has the appropriate education, training and skills to deliver their payroll. Um, it isn't just about pushing, pushing buttons. There's nothing that pushes my button more than hearing somebody say just about pushing buttons. Um, it isn't. It requires a huge amount and an increasing amount of knowledge. And the rate and pace of change for the payroll profession in the in the last couple of years has just become extreme. You know, change is normal for payroll professionals. We deal with it every year and always have done. However, um, the rate and pace of change is becoming extreme, really. So as I say, from a professional perspective, this is a good thing. Uh, we're pleased that the, the government has such high regard, hold us in such high regard. But that message to employers of how important it is that their payroll profession is appropriately qualified knowledgeable and he's maintaining those skills because as i say the change is is constant it isn't just every tax year it can be throughout the tax year now it requires huge skills
was quite excited by some of the changes. I know there's been, um, I think the you mentioned the neonatal pay changes, um, you know, now giving support for 12 weeks. I think that was a really positive change. Um, I think, you know, there was obviously a big campaign led by um, the mum in Croydon, Cacciona um, Ogilvy. Um, I think she was backed by 350,000 people in her campaign where, you know, for, for premature babies, they can now... Parents can now claim an extra £160 a week under under the new measures. And I think that's a really positive change, even though it probably does uh, change the administrative burden on payroll professionals in, in getting to speed with that. I think it's, it's nice to see the government make some positive changes in, in relation to, to, to the neonatal pay in particular. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Going back to um, the first the first part of this podcast, we talked about delays in the, in the, in the last budget that was given. Given the delay in delivering this budget, were there any particular surprises relating to tax rates and thresholds? Thankfully not. Um, the CIPP, together with fellow uh, professional bodies and stakeholders, uh, particularly in the form of software developers, had lobbied hard to have as much information before the budget, the delayed budget, as possible. Uh, I'm obviously moving to the autumn budget, which was a proposal that Philip Hammond put forward and just having the one major fiscal event was aimed at ensuring that the software profession, um, software developers, had sufficient time to build into their systems any new changes to rates and thresholds. Um, and obviously, the delay as a result of the general election um, caused a, a major hiccup. Now, Many years ago, uh, it wasn't uncommon to have a spring budget. In fact, it was perfectly normal to have a spring budget. And it wasn't uncommon to be bringing in new tax rates seven weeks, eight weeks after the tax year had started. But again, we've but as a profession, uh, we've moved on a lot since then. We, you know, the vast majority employers operate um, using software. You know, they don't work manually like they used to. We don't rely on tax tables. Um, is published and available from HMRC in the, in the same way we once did. And so with it being delayed from autumn a couple of times, there was a lot of lobbying went, went on to ensure that that information was released early. So although it, has, it was released early under the usual banner of this has to be confirmed through Parliament, one thing particular, of particular note for um, software developers was the NI threshold. We knew from the Conservatives' manifesto that it was the intention of this government to raise the, the primary threshold for national insurance to 9,500. But obviously, normally, we would have that confirmed in a budget, which we did get it confirmed in a budget. But there was a, a letter sent forward um, to the Chancellor to say, please, can we have this information earlier because software developers need this? Because whereas tax is accumulative and it can be adapted um, through the year, national insurance is not. It looks at an earnings period and asks, 
does is this figure exceeded yes or no there is no element um to deal with it on, on an accumulative basis and therefore correct it on an accumulative basis um so so we were pleased that that information was released early and therefore what we received in the budget was confirmation that the rates and thresholds we thought would be in play would be in play from an income tax perspective uh, and also from national insurance. There were a couple of announcements that um, we hadn't known about, um, specifically the blind person's allowance um, facing a slight increase. What we are now waiting for, as we discussed, the uh, Scottish um, Parliament approved their budget on the 5th of March because, as we know, that they'd gone earlier, they hadn't waited, uh, well, they hadn't been able to wait um, for the UK Parliament to 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 have their budget. Um, so what software developers are currently waiting for, again, there's been no change to work to the amounts that were announced during the Scottish budget. Um, but what software developers now are waiting for is news of when those revised tax thresholds to the basic rate, um, the starter rate and the intermediary rate, intermediate rate are going to be implemented um, because they couldn't be announced um, they couldn't be taken forward earlier, uh, so we're waiting to uh, we're waiting to hear from um, HMRC on that. Uh, and I would imagine normally uh, the software developer support team from HMRC work very effectively following budget confirmation. And again, Welsh government budget um, was approved on the third of March, uh, and there were no major changes to what we expected from there. What was new was the the announcement of the national insurance holiday for companies who are employing veterans or who plan to employ a veteran um, in their first year um, in civvies, um, if you will. Now, that's not an immediate April 2020 change. Um, that's ultimately going to be rolled out uh, with a digital solution from April 2022. Um, but it's proposed that from April 21 to April, through to 22, there would be a transitional period to deliver that. Uh, and so we await to hear a little bit more about that NI holiday for veterans. And again, confirmation that the national insurance contributions limit and thresholds uh, would be raised to nine and a half thousand um, was encouraging. It sees once again the primary threshold um, veer away from the secondary threshold. For a couple of years, we've had them both at the same same level, but um, uh, but they've separated again this year. So yes, no major changes there. No major surprises then by the sounds of things. But there has been in the payroll community quite a lot of speculation about the employment allowance increases. So do we anticipate this is going to help employers? Well, indeed, the employers who are going to be able to claim it, certainly. Um, obviously, I mean, this, again, it delivers on a, on a manifesto promise um, that the employment allowance for eligible employers um, will increase from 3,000 to 4,000 from April 2020. Um, if we look at this just from a, a pause for a moment and look at it from a practical perspective for software developers, you've got two camps for software developers. Um, you'll have some software that will enable this amount to be changed manually by the user and then you'll have some software that will issue a fix to upload that new figure from 3000 to 4000 so from a practical software perspective that's where we're at in terms of this news for anyone who who looked closely at the costings in the manifesto documents um, they won't have been surprised by this news and there was, there was speculation just this week about it increasing to 4000 but anyone else who wasn't looking closely at the costing documents um, uh, that come out with the manifestos they they might have been surprised by that 
because, of course, our attention has been on the uh, the changes this year for the employment allowance, which are namely that employers who have a secondary NICs bill of less than 100,000 in the preceding tax year, so this current tax year, if the employer's secondary NIC, so that's the employer national insurance contribution, is less than 100,000, then from April, they will be able to apply um, for the employment allowance, now £4,000, we know, from the, the budget. As a result of um, this restriction to certain employers and not all employers, which is how the employment allowance currently operates, what this has caused is for the employment allowance to be classed as de minimis state aid. Now, this is a, a final parting shot um, from Europe, really, I guess. Um, these are European um, uh, regulations, and obviously it's about um, it's about economic advantage. Um, you know, does this, re does this restriction um, place on that individual an economic advantage in some way, and not just in the UK, but across Europe? And so HMRC, who are the public body responsible for processing the employment allowance had to go through a process to consider whether or not this would be considered uh, de minimis state aid, and, and indeed it is. And so they, as a public body, have a process to follow as a result and records to be kept in the event that um, uh, the EU Commission comes over to check their, uh, check their accounts. Um, but of course, for us in payroll, when the news broke in the summer that this would require software developers in the payroll profession, the employers, um, to submit a declaration, not only stating that they're, by claiming the employment allowance, they would not exceed um, an, an amount that they are allowed in their trade sector. And there are four trade sectors. So bear with me, please try not to fall asleep while I kind of read this out. But um, there are four trade sectors. Primary production of agricultural products, the limit over a three-year period for the amount of de minimis state aid that they can receive is €20,000. Fisheries and aquaculture sector, €30,000. And again, this is over a three-year period. Um, road freight transport sector, €100,000. Uh, euros and in any other industry or other sector, two hundred thousand euros. And again, this is over a three-year period. Now, from an employment allowance perspective, this this um, employers have been asked to consider the previous two years and the tax year ahead from the sixth of April, and ask themselves: Have will they exceed the the limit for their trade sector by taking the four thousand? pounds employment allowance. Now, you will have heard me say euros there, and that is because even though we don't operate using the euro, um, the currency that has to be used in this instance, um, and for the 2020-21 tax year, even though we're in a transitional period now uh, for exiting Europe, is euros. Now, initially, the guidance was, or the instruction was going to be that that figure in euros would need to be stated on the employment payment summary, the EPS within the payroll software. And if the payroll software didn't have an EPS, then the employer would need to, to, to input that information through HMRC's basic payroll tools. Now, pay as you earn tools. Um, now, as you might imagine, this news was met 
with horror. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that it's reassuring to know that the government feel ha, hold payroll in such high regard, uh, and we are we are proud of that. However, there are limits, um, and you know, to, to, whilst employment allowance is recovered through the uh, payroll system um, and has been since its introduction, there's an element of common sense about that. But to actually then to start accounting for any other amounts of de minimis state aid, which will have absolutely nothing to do with payroll, as you can imagine, uh, and particularly when those amounts have to be quoted in euros, uh, caused quite a Ferrari. We talked about employer admin burden earlier. Well, that would be an admin burden step too far. Uh, now, fortunately, um, following lobbying and meetings and roundtables, um, um, HMRC went back to the drawing board and thought, right, OK, how can we deal with this that doesn't place that unreasonable admin burden on the employer and the payroll profession? Um, and so whilst the software currently has the euros box in it, it, it will default for the 2020-21 tax year to zero. So there'll be no requirement to make that entry. But the employer still has to confirm that they have not, they will not exceed in that three-year period those limits. Um, and they'll need to confirm which trade sector they are in. So their first question to themselves is, were, were my secondary NICs exceeding 100,000 last year, yes or no? Now, they may do their own payroll in-house or they may outsource their payroll, but they need to be, and if they outsource their payroll to, uh, to uh, a payroll bureau, uh, a bookkeeper, an accountant, they need to be talking to them now. And I'm sure that their, 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 their outsourced service will be in touch with them already. Um, because they will need to confirm which trade sector they sit in. And if, if particularly if they're in, say, agriculture, where that, that only has a very small de minimis state aid limit, largely because they already receive other amounts of state aid. So the actual amount of de minimis state aid, which tend to be quite small payments, um, they don't need to have those. Um, so they will need to confirm which trade sector they're in, um, and whether or not uh, in the last two years they've had any other amounts of de minimis state aid that will take them over that 20,000 when you add in the 4,000 um, pounds of employment allowance. Now, I, I keep talking about the 4,000 pounds employment allowance that HMRC will um, publish on gov.uk the rate, um, the exchange rate that needs to be used for the calculation for the employer to, to make, to work out. So in the event they are close to being to what, uh, uh, one of these limits, um, they will need to make that actual calculation. For the vast majority of employers, I think it's unlikely they're, being, they're going to be anywhere close, uh, particularly if they're in the wider industry that has a limit of 200,000. But um, nevertheless, it, it is a new obligation, not on the payroll profession, but the payroll profession needs to be aware of it because, as I say, that, that declaration will traditionally go through, that, that EPS will traditionally be processed by the, whoever's processing the payroll. Um, but that information will need to be provided by the employer. Um, now, what happens next year um, is anyone's guess, because obviously then, you know, we're in a transition period of exiting Europe. Who knows what the next year will hold? But for this year, 21, 2021, um, this will need to, 
this will need to um, to be processed. Now, um, the public bodies who issue uh, de minimis state aid are required to provide in writing confirmation of the amount that they're giving in de minimis aid in euros. And the HMRC are no different from any other public body. So in the event um, that the employer makes a declaration and claims the 4,000 and HMRC accept that claim, and they may not if their records show that the secondary NICs were in excess of 100,000 in the previous year. If they reject the claim, then there'll be an electronic notification that will be issued uh, in the same way as other electronic communications are made. So the payroll, um, the, whoever receives the electronic notifications will need to watch out for that. So in the event that it is rejected, there will be an immediate um, electronic notification um, telling the employer that. However, if they are successful, which I'm sure the majority will be, they will receive a letter from HMRC that will confirm the amount of 4,000 in euros, even if the employer isn't going to claim all of the 4,000. So, um, you know, particularly small employers who have very low secondary NICS bills, they may not need to claim the whole amount. But as far as HMRC are concerned, the whole amount has to be accounted for at the, uh, at the outset. Excellent. Now, there was, there was also an announcement um, of a call for evidence on how to address different tax outcomes for low earners. Was this something that was welcomed? Absolutely, it was welcomed. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, the, opt the optimist in us, um, because the CIPP have worked hard uh, with, alongside other stakeholders who've lobbied um, through the Net Pay Action Group, led by Baroness Ross Altman. Um, We've worked furiously hard to um, to raise this issue of that difference between uh, for 1.3 million workers, it's estimated, um, who earn whose earnings are at or just uh, above or below or just above the personal income tax. They don't receive the same tax relief um, um, th that an employer uh, that other employers uh, employees do who earn more. Um, and again, it m much depends on whether or not the employer uses a net pay arrangement, which is a, an anomaly in itself. The, the term net pay arrangement, when we think of net pay, we think about take home pay. We don't think this is net taxable pay arrangement. So it's where that pension contribution comes off the gross gross pay before um, before tax is calculated. So there you get that full relief. Now, if your pay is already at or uh, around the twelve and a half thousand, um, then you won't you won't get any benefit because your your pay is already uh, under that scheme. Your pay is already in that situation, and then of course you've got uh, sorry your pay is already below being taxable. Uh, but then of course you've got relief um, source arrangements, which is where HMRC process any tax relief direct to the uh, pension scheme. And because of this difference, uh, and and um, you know it's it's. And, and it's inherent unfairness. Um, there's been long-term lobbying, and of course, pensions. There wasn't. There was. There was a little bit about pensions in terms of the tapering relief for the higher paid. Uh, particularly, I mean, the Chancellor stressed um, uh, higher paid doctors who were being uh, who were turning down overtime, maybe even being forced into retirement, um, rather than have hefty tax bills by exceeding. Um, the limits that are allowed to them, and I think I think he could play a little bit on on the doctors there, um, 
simply because of the uh, emergency measures with uh, with the coronavirus. Um, and 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 he did he did so brilliantly. Um, but so there was good news for them. But as I say, we were particularly uh, pleased to hear this um, outcome, and we'll be supporting the call for evidence uh, when it's published in due course. Were there any um, surprise announcements relating to the taxation of company cars and vans or um, expenses and benefits in kind? Are they having a greater impact on the, on the power profession? No major surprises. I mean, when it comes to um, the government's attempt at um, addressing climate change, there's there's one area of tax that has been used mercilessly over the years um, to drive certain behaviour of taxpayers, and that's as uh, as it relates to company cars. Um, and and so we, we've known for some years what the proposals would be in terms of rates um, and thresholds for company cars, and particularly low emission cars. So that's they, they've been known. Uh, the van benefit uh, nil rating from 2122 um was new um that's for zero emission vans um but other than that the what we were pleased to see was that the government um again investing in the infrastructure because it's one thing encouraging through the tax system employees to request um low emission zero emission company cars and company vehicles, but that's no good if their infrastructure isn't there um, to enable them to charge when they need to. Um, and also, and I know this is this is something that I came across um, in my personal life um, this last year, we had some home improvements done and my other half insisted on having a, a, a charging point put in um, on, on the outside wall. And I said, well, why would you do that? We haven't, why would you do that? We haven't got, we haven't got an electric car. Ah, yes, but the government have got these target uh, targets to meet. And so people need charging points, um, uh, which immediately set the electrician off moaning about how the um, electrical supplies will actually be able to cope when everyone comes home at 6.30 and plugs their car in. Um, you know, will our televisions disappear? Um, uh, will we be able to, you know, kind of go on to Google or Amazon and, and make orders? Or will all of the electricity be used up um, supporting um, the charging of company cars? Now, that is not at all payroll related, but it's so. But um, it, it went through my mind when I saw the measures that um, that the government are trying to take um, to kind of bolster um, the infrastructure. Uh, a little bit more. They, I think there's more to go yet. Uh, and the priority, of course, this time round was the, the investment needed to, to support business um, during the, uh, the, the health crisis. Sure, sure. Makes perfect sense. Now, of course, if anyone is interested in finding out more about all of the aspects of the budget that Samantha has discussed today, there's a wealth of information available at the CIPP website, which you can access by going to cipp.org.uk. And I will, of course, put a link directly to the website in the episode notes as well. So, Samantha, it sounds like in summary of the budget, payroll is, again, becoming more and more important, as you mentioned earlier, in, in becoming a really um, important vessel in supporting working families. The new budget, it sounds like uh, the government is very much committed to taking actions in light of COVID-19 to help families with the cost of living. We would hope um, we can see that 
from the conversation today, the budget has confirmed a tax cut for 31 million working people uh, with the increase in national insurance contribution thresholds for employees and the self-employed should hopefully result in the typical employee saving around £104 and a self-employed person around £78. So that's all very, very positive. There's also some other news as well from the budget where the government um, is helping others with the cost of living by freezing things like fuel duty for the 10th consecutive year, alcohol duties for those interested, uh, applying a zero rate of tax to e-publications, abolishing the tampon tax and making it easier for parents of up to 500,000 school-aged children to access tax-free childcare. Um, I think it's been really, really good to see the rollout of universal credit to support the most vulnerable in society. We mentioned there's a £500 million fund that's been set up to help those that are particularly vulnerable. And of course, the changes in relation to uh, the extra help that's now available for parents of sick or, of course, premature babies. I know, of course, there's a, a burden. A burden may be the wrong word, but there's additional uh, administrative responsibilities for the payroll professional as a result of some of these changes, um, to which we've mentioned to, to SSP and SPP and, and SMP in, in these particular scenarios. But I think hopefully there will positive changes to allowing payroll professionals to really help families in, in what could be some quite difficult times ahead with the markets in the position that they are. And also, of course, the government is hopefully committed to helping small businesses uh, as well. And you mentioned uh, a moment ago the uh, the employment allowance increasing to 4,000 will, we believe, benefit up to 510,000 businesses across the UK, which is fantastic. Are there any other budget elements that we've missed or, or overlooked? Or I think otherwise it's a, a pretty good summary of the key elements that I think are going to be affecting payroll professionals uh, across the UK. This indeed is is an exciting time for for working in payroll, I don't think, I mean, I've worked in payroll, I was 16 when I first started working in wages as was. Um, and there were only, there was tax, national insurance and statutory sick pay. That was it. That was the only thing I had to deal with. Um, and here we are 40 years on. Um, we have so much more. And, and there's a couple of things just to sort of finish off in terms of the off payroll working. One of the biggest concerns now is that because off payroll measures are purely a tax reform. They are nothing to do with employment rights. Um, and one of the biggest concerns now, which didn't crop up quite so much with public sector reforms, but is being talked about extensively now, is, is that um, right to employment rights bar from the engager who's processing the payment for tax. Um, now, historically, this, is, this was with, with IR35, where the PSC is, is responsible, was responsible, they still are if they're working with small engagers, um, where they're responsible for dealing with IR35 and assessing a contract to see whether it's one of deemed employment. They, are, they receive employment rights through the PSC that they work through, um, the intermediary that they are working through. So they receive it that way. But one of the biggest debates that's starting to come up now isn't processing the payment for payroll necessarily or dealing with the tax from that perspective, it's actually questioning whether or not employment rights should go with that payment. Um, and that's that's one that's that that's a discussion that's growing force, which is why we were quite disappointed not to see 
um, a response to the employment status consultation that was carried out a number of years ago now. Um, so we're looking forward to that. We hope that that will come out this year, um, but who knows what's going to be delayed now. And also just to pick up on the whole expenses and benefits in kind, because again, off payroll gives an opportunity for a payroll professional to upskill whether it's voluntarily or whether it's um, compulsory. Um, uh, but also with the expenses and benefits in kind question, um, historically, you would complete a P11D to account for um, benefits in kind and, and certain relevant expenses um, at, a, at a year end. And you submit the P11Ds by July. But increasingly, payrolling is is growing in numbers and employers are seeing the possible benefits to them by having their payroll professional deal with expenses and benefits through the payroll rather than um, through P11Ds. Um, and there was a, a survey carried out recently that um, looked to find out what were the biggest challenges with um, expenses and benefits in kind. And, and surprisingly, company cars and vans were, were identified as one of the key issues. Now, actually, there are more complex areas than dealing with the taxation of a company car, because a company car follows a base, a very standard um, several step process in terms of making that calculation. So it was interesting to hear that. And I, I wonder how much those survey results were impacted by the fact that um, payrolling now um, by processing the benefiting kind through the payroll, um, a lot more information is required to be input to the payroll system than previously would have been. It would have been previously with the P11D, but if you never dealt with, because payroll professionals will, will come in two camps in this situation, either they will have dealt with everything in terms of pay, in terms of P11Ds, in terms of finance, they may well have dealt with many different um areas of work within their employment. Um, and then you might have others who have colleagues um, who are tax specialists who deal with P11Ds. And therefore, there's a real, again, we go back to that subject of education, knowledge um, and skills. And, and, and this is an area that if a, if a payroll professional finds themselves in a situation where they're having to consider payrolling, they need to question, have I got the skills in order to make these calculations toward, in order to understand a very complicated area of tax law? So again, that's a, another opportunity just again to raise that importance uh, and that important message to employers about ensuring that their payroll professional is adequately educated and upskilled and is carrying on with their continued professional development to maintain those skills. Sure. And if you are an employer, of course, you can go to the CIPP website and have a look at the range of courses that you offer, as well as some of the other providers that are out there. So there's loads of training and qualifications that can be had for those interested in upskilling themselves. Um, I think that pretty much brings us to a, a close, Samantha. So thank you, um, Samantha Mann, Policy and Research Technical Lead at the CIPP, for joining me today on the payroll podcast special episode all about the budget there might be elements here you'll need to rewind and listen to again because it's quite detailed but do make sure you get yourselves fully up to speed with the latest budget there are a number of changes that will be affecting payroll professionals up and down uh, the uk so it's really important we get to grips with the with the changes as soon as possible and of course if you are affected by covid19 or you do um your employer has asked you to work from home or you're looking things to change um, it's worth me mentioning as a recruiter that we are still continuing to work here as well. We do offer services such as 
as a video interviewing for those that are unable to come into an office or to make a face-to-face interview as well. So if you are interested in um, recruiting a payroll expert at the moment, but you're not quite sure how to go about it because you are incapacitated in the sense that you can't make it into the office, there are a number of um, solutions we can offer to make sure that your recruitment process doesn't slow down during this time of um, relative, hopefully short-term crisis. But I want to say a huge thank you, Samantha, for joining me today on the Payroll Podcast. Right back at you, Nick. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Excellent. Well, you're no longer a newbie, which is great. Uh, so you, you can tick this one off your bucket list. Um, been fantastic having you on board. And of course, I'll put links in the episode notes for anyone that's interested. Uh, I wish you all that's listening to this uh, a very healthy um, next few months. I hope that uh, no one listening to this is overly affected directly by the COVID-19. We've got some, um, you know, some uncertain times ahead, but let's all work together and hope that we're all on the on the brighter side of this uh, in a few months' time. But uh, I wish you all well. I hope you're all safe and I look forward to speaking to you all again in a couple of weeks. All the best. Thanks, Samantha. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.